gives you speaking from it. All right, the time is 8.55 p.m. Tuesday, October 18, 2022. Jeff Hood, Anthony Sanchez. All right, Anthony, back to, back to it, man. So, th- so through discovery, you're starting to find out what you feel like is some of the, the evidence that they've concocted against you. You're also starting to figure out, you know, some of the people who have basically turned against you. And, um, you know, and so uh, so you're, you're, you're approaching the trial. What do your attorneys say? They're just telling me, don't talk to nobody. You head down. Nah, you'll be all right. We'll get right at the end of this. And the whole time, they're telling me that they've been talking to my alibis. They've talked to my father. They've talked to my mother. They've talked to my brothers and sisters. They've talked to my family, my aunts, and my uncle, my husband. They haven't talked to nobody. And they've been keeping me away from my family the whole time. I don't know any of this until after the trial. Even phone calls, most phone calls, when I try to call from the jailhouse, um, I would get maybe three or four minutes into the call, and then the phone would mess up every single time. It's very, very weird that I got to spend time on the phone with my family. And then they put me in Cleveland County as visitation for 15-minute visitation. So I got one visitor for 15 minutes each week. And that was my dad. And my dad, my dad was telling me, hey, well, tell your lawyers to come talk to me. Can I, uh, how are we going to talk to them? Um, I got some witnesses for you. But at the whole time, my lawyers were telling me that they are talking to them. The whole time, they didn't talk to none of them. And my dad had, he had, excuse me, he recorded the conversation at Panera Bread with my attorney. And my parents got really mad because my dad put him on blast. Like, hey, why are you not talking to his family? Why, why are we you not looking into his alibi and his evidence of where we were at? And then they got mad. My, my dad should have never showed him the recorder. He's like, I'm recording y'all. They got mad, got up, and walked out. But that's all I'm recording somewhere. So, so. Were you aware of all of the media coverage that was going on um, at this no. at at this time? No. So, no. when did you start realizing how big of a deal this trial was and how much media coverage it was getting? Probably the day of trial, when it was a bunch of white people looking at me. Hmm. So. So let me ask you this. Um, when the trial started on day one, tell me what that first day was like. Well, let, let me back up. Let me back up. When you were um, engaging jury selection and you saw all of these white folks uh, getting called to the jury, what were you thinking? I wrote down the I wrote, I wrote, I wrote everything that I could think of about the jury, what they were wearing, what they were saying, how they were talking. I wrote, I wrote, because I, at the day of trial, this is what really scared. They came to my cell, 
You know, myself, I didn't have no TV, no radio. That's why I was not aware of the media. I didn't have nothing in myself. No books, no nothing. I had a mattress, a blanket, and some toilet paper. That's it. And I didn't know anything. They kept asking me back and forth from prison to county, prison to county. So I didn't have anything. I wasn't really, I really wasn't aware of how many people were going to be there. And the day of jury selection, he told me to keep my mouth shut to do all the questioning. And to me, I felt like I was, and it was a question seeing because I actually did see some Hispanics and some Indian jurors. And before they were ever questioned, they were, I think it's called excuses for cause. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what's the cause? And they didn't say anything. So they just kept on asking these other jurors. And, you know, a few of them even knew who I was. I knew them from the world. And I, I'm like, why are they excused? They should be my peers, right? I mean, if they knew who I was, that would that be you. So, but, yeah, I was scared. I didn't know what the judge wrote. I wrote, like, what did that juror say? What did that juror's name was? I wrote that thing about that juror that I could think of. So, as, the only thing to keep my mind on. So, as, as, uh, as time went on and they started to seat the jury, you felt like, you know, I'm fucked, basically. Well, not necessarily. I felt, I felt like, man, these people are going to see that I didn't murder you, period. There's no, no, that's not going to happen. I'm, so I'm e- so even, my little out, I'm going to the house. So even at this stage of the game, you were convinced that the truth was going to come out? Yes. So, yes. And, and so, so as the trial gets started, and the prosecutor stands up and delivers this, you know, condemnation of you. You're a killer. You're this, and put it all together. Was that the first time you had had somebody, or you had heard somebody try to put it all together? Oh, his story was like something out of a fairy tale book. It's like he just put made this whole story with bits and pieces. There wasn't even Nothing. There was nothing to it. And he just put it all together like this is what happened. Whoopsie bam. And I'm like, what? Hmm. That doesn't even make no sense to me. And I, I mean, it's just the way he put it. I, I'm, the story that he put out. Like, whoa, hold on. I don't to say something again. And that was like, no, stay calm. Just keep writing, doing what you're doing. So I just kept doing what I was doing. And I just kept writing. I tried to write everything that was finished in trial. Everything. So there's no out there. That's my handwriting. I try to write as fast as they thought. Because now I even wrote this little note on the side of it when I wrote C line, E line. That's a lie. Because there's a lot of things when when he was talking about, ah, I just wanted to be like, stop lying, man. And so. And now that I'm. So as this. So as. Uh, as they started calling witnesses. Um, various witnesses. Which witnesses would you say? So, when the DNA expert got up there, that lady Melissa Keith, what did you think when she was up there? Everything she said kind of went over my head. Like, 
I didn't understand the big word that was coming out of her mouth, and I couldn't spell it right on my paper. I mean, there was, she said some big words, and I'm like, well, I don't even know what she's talking about right now. Yeah, so I had to say she was a really bad kid, that was a big word that I didn't understand what she was talking about. So did when your uh, defense attorneys cross examined her, uh, I know I listened to one part where they did ask. Uh, I think they briefly asked about Joyce Gilchrist. It just seems like they glossed over a lot. They it seems like they could have poked some holes in the DNA evidence at least, but it seems like they just kind of gave her a pass. Well, they really didn't ask her much, really. And that, uh, there were some things that I wanted to ask, but they didn't ask. And I, there was a, I, I wrote, like, there's maybe pages of questions that I wanted to ask to get some intimacy in their lady that was never asked. Well, I mean, so so your attorneys were basically saying, you know, we got this, even at this point. So what, I mean, how did they, how did they say that the DNA evidence would be refuted? They didn't. They didn't come at me with no, no game plan. There was no game plan brought to my attention whatsoever. It was, we're going to trial, this is how it is. Uh, And that's what's scary. Right. Before, before. Before we went into trial, they came to my cell for probably about, I don't know, nine or ten officers in suits and, and like full, full life. And they put this shot collar to the door. Like, put this on. I'm like, I'm not putting that shot collar on. There's no way I'm wearing a collar that shocks you. And one of the officers like, no, you're going to wear that shot collar. And I'm like, with all due respect, I'm not, I'm not wearing that collar. And then another officer stuck in a piece of paper and told me to sign it. And he said, okay, we'll sign this paper. But as I read that paper, it said it relieved them of any problem that would arise out of the electrocution of our, I want to say it said 100,000 volts of electricity. I, I may be exaggerating, but it said a whole bunch of volts. And I'm like, no, I'm not signing that paper either. And that's what, that's what really put me on a scary little trip down to trial. And so, at, the, at, me, well, at that point, that's when that's when they started making you wear the shackles. Yeah. So, you, so you went through the whole trial with shackles on. And handcuffs. And handcuffs. So, the, so every time you reached up to the table to write, them shackles would have clanked. So every time you during jury selection, every time you moved, those shackles would have clanked. So I mean, obviously, uh, anybody with any sense would think that you were guilty before you ever started the trial. You see, that's something that you. I, I didn't know that. I, that's something that you're bringing to my attention. But as as me, I, I was young. I was eighteen years old. 
let me say that that I, I was I wasn't eighteen then, but I was still young. Hmm. So I wouldn't I didn't know anything about the trial system. I've never been to trial before. I didn't know you wasn't supposed to wear handcuffs and shackles. But the answer to your question, every time I moved, there wasn't nobody in the courtroom who didn't look at me every time I moved. Every time I go to stretch my legs, they all turned and looked. Every time I stretch my arms, they all turned to look. So yes, they absolutely they heard the noises. So so when and you're when we were in jury selection Go ahead. When we were in jury selection, they kept hitting the table and the table was a glass and the judge kept looking at me mean and hateful. And I wasn't trying to do it on purpose. It was just it was, you know, being a handsome shepherd was kinda of uncomfortable and you gotta move around every now and then. No, I get that. So, um, so when your your baby's mama, your ex girlfriend, when she gets up there to testify, how did that make you feel? What were you thinking then? Well, I was trying not to think of it because everything that came out of her mouth was a bold faced lie. Everything. So you were, so you were just angry. I said, so you was angry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, could, I couldn't believe myself that you're going to have these people, you're going to help these people execute me. And to me, myself, I think, so that tells me you actually think I've done something like that after all the things she's done to me? And then, and I, I just, it, it just didn't compute in my head, man. It just, to this day, I still understand why she did it. But at the same time, I still don't understand why she called the police and told them so many times. So, as uh, so as all of the you know the prosecution's case is wrapping up, and uh, you're hearing all of this, and they didn't gone through all this stuff after they presented everything, how did you feel? It seems like it seems like from what you from what you described, it was rigged based on race. It was rigged based on an urgency to solve this crime because it was such a well-known crime. And uh, and it also seemed that it was rigged in the fact that once they started the trial, they were determined to get a, a guilty verdict uh, a lot more than they were determined to expose the truth. I started doing the motion. I asked if I had a problem 
with my trial attorney going to church with Julie Buskin. Then that I had a problem with my trial judge going to church with Julie Buskin. That's when I started really having problems. Well, when you when, when you and started when you started realizing everybody was connected, I guess. Yeah. I got uh, you. And that, that, that was in a Ku Klux Klan convention or something. I got you. So let me ask you this. Um, when when it came time for your defense to offer their rebuttal, what happened then? What did your attorneys do? Not a whole lot of anything, really. Uh, well, how they say that? Enough, but enough to look like they did something. Right. So did there they? Wasn't no, there wasn't no. There wasn't no witnesses. There wasn't no alibi witnesses. There wasn't none of that. So they didn't let you. I mean, so they so they basically told you, uh, you know, we've got enough to beat this. We don't have to call anybody. Something to that effect. That is like, well, the burden's not on us. Whatever that. Yeah, I mean, they were basically saying that, uh, you know, the the burden is on the prosecution, and we don't think that they proved the case. But unfortunately. You know, when the prosecution is sitting here talking about DNA evidence, this witness, that witness, and all these types of things, you know, it's uh, it's pretty damning, um, unfortunately. And uh, the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking is that, uh, you know, they had the initial suspect who looked a lot like that sketch and who had a very similar DNA to you. Um, that was that the defense attorneys, um, your defense attorneys didn't seem to spend a whole lot of time on that, which to me, that would have been a perfect thing to spend a lot of time on, uh, to bring that out. They, they didn't bring up the fact that the lady that drew that sketch was the eyewitness and she drew Julie Buskin to the team. So how could she be that far off from the killer? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, the, the sketch pretty much does, uh, does seem to reflect that uh, there was somebody else, uh, somebody else with Julie Buskin that night. Um, okay, so when it came time, you have one minute left. Well, what we'll do is in the next episode, we will. Um, this would be uh, episode four. We'll go into uh, closing arguments and whatnot.